This week on Myths and Legends, we're wrapping up the original story of Pinocchio, where we'll learn how to get out of those pesky murder charges, how to best fry up some puppets, and how to use a little-known fact of human development to become a sleazy millionaire. It's a busy week. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a sinister frog monster from Japan. Or a guy in a wetsuit who's very gassy. This is Myths and Legends, episode 112C, Whale Jail. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the show, we met Pinocchio, a terrible little marionette on a redemptive arc after his craftsman dad, Geppetto, was lost at sea. He lives with the turquoise fairy, his adoptive mom, who has pledged to turn him into a real boy if he's good. So he tries, and because of that, becomes the target of bullying, which led to a group of boys luring him out to a beach, and then accidentally bludgeoning a boy on the sand with Pinocchio's textbook. Seeing the boy that they knew just had to be dead, the others took off as the police ran up, leaving Pinocchio holding his bloody textbook next to the body. Pinocchio sat on the sand, trembling. One soldier stood over him, while another inspected the scene of the crime. A bulky mastiff sniffed the sand, then the book. Now the soldiers were huddling, conferring with one another. It was obvious. The puppet had done it. He had killed the boy. Just as they came to that conclusion, the wind blew and took Pinocchio's cap with it. He pointed it after it wordlessly, knowing it was futile. The soldiers would never let him go after it. Yet another memory of his father, gone. You want to go get that? One soldier asked. Pinocchio stammered. You sure? He asked. I'm a suspect in a murder investigation. And you're cool with me running off after my hat? The soldier shrugged. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Pinocchio took a deep breath and, I imagine, asked this guy if it was his first day. Of course, it had to be the soldier's first week. I mean, this was a rookie mistake. As he stretched, Pinocchio informed him that letting the suspects run away? Really bad idea. And with that, Pinocchio took off like a shot, snatched his hat, and kept running. A few hundred yards later, the soldier turned to his friend, who was still busy inspecting the beach, and suggested that, while he might be new, he didn't think the puppet boy was coming back. The other soldier squinted down the coastline. You think? Both men stood there, hesitating. Neither of them were really cardio enthusiasts, and they had just eaten really hearty breakfasts. Still, they couldn't just let him go. He was wanted for murder. The senior officer snapped his fingers. They'd send the Mastiff. With a roll of his eyes, the big dog lumbered off toward the suspect slash running chew toy. Down the beach, Pinocchio ran and ran but with his wooden muscles, he knew he could never outrun a dog on land. He'd have to venture out to sea. After all, he was basically a sentient paddleboard. He heard the Mastiff gaining on the sands behind him, nipping at his hardwood heels. And that's when Pinocchio broke right and went for the water. It was a good move. For several minutes, he paddled hard, not looking back. And it was only when he did look back 
that he realized he had hardly needed to paddle at all. The dog apparently couldn't swim, and he was now drowning. So committed to his duties, the dog had followed the puppet into the sea and was quickly out of his depth. He yelped for help, paws splashing frantically. Pinocchio hollered that this was awesome. Him drowning solved a lot of problems for the sentient puppet. Still, the dog begged. Now, Pinocchio is bad, but it's just a light to medium mischievousness. He's not listened to an animal drown while he could easily save him bad. Pinocchio groaned and began paddling back to the dog. And on the way, he made the dog promise not to come after him again. From his compromised situation, the dog had no choice and agreed. He would do anything for Pinocchio to save him. Pinocchio dragged the dog close enough to shore so the dog could barely touch sand before letting him go and quickly swimming into deeper water. Hey, where are you going? The dog barked. Pinocchio explained that the dog's soldier's co-workers were catching up with him at a very slow walk. Since he lived like an hour away, he was just going to float down the coast for a little while to make his way home, where, you know, he wasn't wanted for murder. Stay safe, Pinocchio told the dog, eyeing the very lazy soldiers who, though they had stopped for a short rest, were now ambling even closer to the shore and starting to get their guns out. Before things got any more exciting, Pinocchio took off toward the sea. A couple hours later, he was floating, exhausted, and making his way to the rocky shoreline to look around and figure out where he was. His fairy mom was going to be really mad about the book, but maybe she would be happy that he wasn't going to spend the rest of his life in prison, even if that did involve lying to and then evading the police. He hooked a wooden hand on the rocks and began to climb. It was a little grueling at first, but then he found the climb growing easier by the second until, wait... Now he didn't need to try at all. He hadn't been rock climbing a lot, but Pinocchio was pretty sure it didn't get easier the farther you climbed. Halfway up, he let go of the rocks altogether and kept ascending. Oh, he was caught in a fishing net. Pinocchio rolled his eyes as the fisherman rolled him out in the batter. He had the dumbest life. The fisherman, despite it literally being his job to know what a fish looked like, was surprised and delighted to catch a Pinocchio in his net. What should have been a five-minute conversation of, yes, I'm a marionette. Yes, I can talk. No, I'm not a fish. Bye bye was quickly derailed by the fisherman jumping for joy, exclaiming that he had never seen a marionette fish before. And boy, was he excited to eat one. And so, despite Pinocchio not being a fish and trying to explain such to the subpar fisherman with an increasing level of futility, Pinocchio, along with the actual fish the fisherman had caught, found himself rolled into batter to be fried and eaten. He didn't know how the oil would affect his wood, probably not well, but he was kind of looking forward to shattering the fisherman's teeth when he tried to eat him. Well, a number of things happened next. A dog as big as a man burst in the door at the smell of the frying fish and the soon-to-be-frying marionette. The man swatted the dog away, but it was relentless. Then, Pinocchio realized that he knew the bark from a few hours earlier. It was Alidoro, the very mastiff he had saved. Pinocchio yelled out to his acquaintance, Hey, the dog's pledged to help? That would be really nice right about now. The dog, 
finally recognizing his battered friend prepping in the fry queue, snatched Pinocchio from the pile and galloped out the door. About halfway to town, Alidoro set Pinocchio down and severed the ties that bound his hands and feet. The Mastiff explained that, because he let Pinocchio go, he was immediately fired, and, since there's no severance package for dogs, he was chased away and left to fend in the wild. He'd smelled the frying fish after wandering for a couple hours, and here they were. Pinocchio thanked the dog, who nodded. He and the puppet were square. Watch out for cops, though. And with that, he said goodbye. About a day later, Pinocchio was finally walking up to his house. It had been a very long few days since he had left for school that fateful morning. At the very least, he learned that he was no longer wanted for murder. The bully hit by the book wasn't dead, just injured to the point where he was knocked unconscious for a couple of hours, which, though still really bad for him, meant that he survived. Still being the absolute worst, however, he went along with the story already forming around the incident and told the police that Pinocchio had assaulted him and his friends, so the puppet was still wanted for questioning. That was about an hour away, though, and all Pinocchio had to do was never return there, and he'd be good. Covered in drying batter, he was pleasantly surprised to find his house standing and not replaced by the fairy's tombstone, but he was very unpleasantly surprised to learn that they now had a butler, a snail butler, and he took his job very seriously. Oh, and who are you? The snail asked, somehow managing to look down his nose at Pinocchio despite being only a few inches tall and not in possession of a nose. Why, Pinocchio was the marionette that lived here. He asked the snail to excuse him as he tried to push past, but the snail blocked his way. No one entered this house without his permission, and his permission came from the lady, the fairy. He just needed to go speak with her. The snail shut the door, and Pinocchio waited ten minutes. Then twenty. Then an hour. Then three hours. He pounded on the door again. 45 minutes later, the snail reappeared. He had been a few feet away when he heard the knocking a second time and returned as quickly as he could from the other side of the house. The fairy was sleeping, so Pinocchio would have to come back another time. Immediately, he shut the door in Pinocchio's face. Now, the puppet was enraged. It was three in the morning, and this was his house. Where was he supposed to go? Determined, he gritted his wooden teeth and gripped the doorknob. When you're a turquoise fairy, you can afford the best in home security. You can also do whatever it is the turquoise fairy did to her house and make it so the doorknob turns to living eels in the hands of uninvited guests. Chucking the slimy doorknob into the grass, Pinocchio kicked the door and got his foot stuck. It seemed to be gripping the wood. At 4 a.m., the snail butler began making breakfast so as to deliver it to everyone by 9 a.m., covered in a non-trivial amount of snail slime. At 9 a.m., he found Pinocchio lodged in the door, and Pinocchio immediately asked him for help. Turning his head, the snail replied that he wasn't a carpenter, nor had he ever been. He was a butler, and a good one at that. Here was the puppet's breakfast. Pinocchio took one exasperated bite of the drugged scone and passed out. Why was the scone drugged? No idea. But Pinocchio woke up on the couch next to his turquoise fairy mom, who said she knew about the whole deal with the police and Eugene, so no need to waste time with exposition. She was actually cool with it. It wasn't his fault, she knew, and 
even though he just spent the last couple of days on the run from the cops, she was considering his oath to be a good kid fulfilled. The day after tomorrow, when he awoke, he would be a real boy. Pinocchio blinked. Just like that? No major set piece where I have to sacrifice my life or something to prove myself brave, truthful, and unselfish? The fairy thought about it. Eh, narratively, that would be much more satisfying. But no. A normal amount of time had passed where he hadn't gotten into any major trouble. You know, that was explicitly his fault. So that was good enough for her. It would be the day after tomorrow. He would wake up and find himself a real boy. Pinocchio looked at his wooden hands and feet. He couldn't believe he was going to be a real boy and go through puberty and turn into an adult and have to pay taxes and die someday. This was awesome. Being a real boy had been his lifelong dream for the past few weeks. He hugged his fairy mom. He just couldn't wait. I guess the heat died down after the whole Eugene incident, what with the boy being out of the hospital, so the turquoise fairy decided to throw Pinocchio a party. The turquoise fairy, her butler, who I'm calling Snailfred, and all of Pinocchio's closest friends who hadn't tried to kill him would be there, and it would be the day before he was set to change. The menu, of course, was 200 cups of coffee and 400 pieces of buttered toast and nothing else. Snailfred had been working furiously for days. It was gonna be amazing. Pinocchio could hardly contain his excitement. Could he walk around town and hand out the invitations to his friends? The turquoise fairy paused. Well, see, here's the thing. She could just magic the invitations to all the boys. The last time Pinocchio had gone out when he didn't need to, the turquoise fairy faked her own death and Geppetto disappeared. We're like, so close to wrapping this whole thing up. Let's just play it safe. But Pinocchio couldn't really be persuaded otherwise. He was so excited to be having a party and seeing his dreams fulfilled that he couldn't be kept from it. He promised he'd be back in an hour, grabbed a stack of invitations, and tore off down the road. So, why aren't you at home? Pinocchio asked his friend, named Lampwick, because he looked like a Lampwick. Lampwick was Pinocchio's favorite classmate, mainly because, by comparison, Pinocchio looked awesome. Lampwick was lazy and would be a pretty adept con artist if he wasn't so proudly stupid. Pinocchio told him that he'd been by his house three times today. Why was Lampwick sitting with a packed bag at a crossroads? As it turned out, he was waiting for midnight to go to a definitely real country. Pinocchio narrowed his wooden, painted eyes. Okay, but... Most real countries didn't feel the need to convince people of their realness. What was this place's name? Lampwick revealed that it was called the Land of Toys. Mm-hmm, uttered Pinocchio. Lampwick continued, In the Land of Toys, there was no such thing as school. Every day was Saturday, except for Sunday. And vacation began on the first day of January and lasted until the last day of December. Pinocchio was listening. If that were true... It would be glorious. Lampwick also talked about how the days were spent playing with toys and with friends from sunup to sundown. And when you woke up, you kept playing. Anyway, Lampwick was leaving in two hours. Wow, that sounded cool, Pinocchio said. But no, 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 no. His whole narrative arc had almost reached a predictable yet satisfying conclusion. 
Pinocchio would not be going. Having learned his lesson before, the puppet wished his friend a happy life and returned home to the turquoise fairy. The next day, he had a party, and the day after that, he woke up and became a real boy. The end. I mean, you know that's not the case, though. To Pinocchio's somewhat credit, it took him about two hours to be worn down enough to give in to the temptation of waiting to see what the carriage looked like that would take Lampwick to the land of toys. Okay, so think about the exact type of person that would be spreading rumors about an obviously fictional land of toys and then drive around abducting children. That's the person that was driving it. It was said he was, quote, round and shiny like a ball of butter and his face beamed like an apple. He always had a creepy smile on it and he had a tiny wheedling voice like a cat begging for food. Kids loved him for whatever reason, and any time anyone saw this greasy little Pied Piper, no child could resist following him. Because he's not quite sleazy enough, the wheels of his carriage were bound with straw and rags, so he could roll into town at night without making a sound. The carriage was already packed with boys, and the stranger thing than pretty much everything else going on at the moment, it was pulled by a team of 24 donkeys, each wearing tattered boys' clothes and not wearing iron shoes like a normal beast of burden, but wearing leather boys' shoes instead. Lampwick leapt atop the carriage, needing absolutely no convincing. It took Pinocchio about 10 minutes of back and forth with the driver, and the dozens of other boys crammed inside to finally join and go to the land of toys. He pushed the turquoise fairy out of his mind. He didn't need to be a real boy if he was going to the definitely real land of toys. With a smile, he told the driver he was happy to come aboard. But the driver said there wasn't any more room in the carriage or on the roof. Pinocchio would have to ride on one of the boy, <clears throat> sorry, the donkeys, ride on one of the 24 donkeys that have always been donkeys. Pinocchio shrugged. That sounded fun enough. Sure, he walked to the lead donkey and it kicked him in the stomach. The boys lost it in the carriage and Pinocchio doubled over onto the ground, clutching his stomach. The driver, however, hefted himself down from the carriage, walked up to the lead donkey, and bit his left ear off. No one was as horrified by this as they really should have been, because Pinocchio simply rose to his feet once again and tried a different donkey. That donkey kicked him in the stomach too. The driver sighed, finished chewing and swallowing the donkey's ear he had just bitten off, and proceeded to eat yet another donkey ear. Talking with his mouth full in maybe the worst way ever, he told Pinocchio that the donkey wouldn't kick him again. He had whispered something in his ear to make him behave, and also bitten one of his ears off. Pinocchio mounted the donkey, the alarm bell still not ringing for some reason, and the carriage rolled silently away, toward the completely real land of toys. Months later, Pinocchio stopped off on a game of tag to have his third dessert breakfast, before his afternoon in which he had penciled in some light graffiti before bike riding, a dessert lunch, and then playing some more games before a dessert dinner, dessert dessert, and bed. Every time he passed Lampwick, he thanked the young man for convincing him to come to, as it turned out, the completely real land of toys. It was full of boys 8 to 14, behaving exactly like a family-friendly version of rowdy boys 8 to 14 behave. They had spent all day playing games, hanging out, destroying stuff, building stuff, and so on. They didn't have any schools, any adults, and written all over the place was, hurrah for the land of toys, down with arithmetic, no more school. 
and things were changing for Pinocchio. After about 10 months, he somehow had grown up. He awoke one morning to find he had grown 10 inches. He felt the top of his head. The turquoise fairy had been kind of vague about how growing up actually went down, but it seemed Pinocchio like his ears were the first to go, which was awesome until he looked in the mirror. He had donkey ears. His shriek startled even himself as he scrambled backwards at the sight of those hairy, pointed ears. He raged at this new development. But the more noise he made, the more hair grew visibly on his new ears. Oh, hey man, what's going on? Pinocchio heard from above him. A dormouse stood on a rafter in his room. Pinocchio screamed out that he was sick or something. He had woken up like, like this. It was horrifying. Did the dormouse know how to take a pulse or tell if someone had a fever? The dormouse shook her head. Dude, she was a mouse. She didn't know any of those things, but sadly, she didn't have to. She knew exactly what was going on with Pinocchio. In two or three hours, he would no longer be a marionette, and he would never be a real boy. He would be a real donkey, which was really more of a lateral move at best from a marionette. Pinocchio stared off in horror. He grabbed his ears and pulled on them in anger. What had he done to deserve this? The Dormouse tried to comfort him with words that would not comfort him at all, saying that there was no use worrying now. What was done could never be undone. Fate has decreed that all lazy boys who come to hate books and schools and teachers and spend all their days with toys and games must sooner or later turn into donkeys. Pinocchio stood stunned. What? Was this like written down somewhere? This was like a really key horrifying thing that was apparently part of every young boy's development. And it was complete news to him. This was like really important news that should be communicated to every young child. The Dormouse looked directly at the camera. Yes, I know. Pinocchio cursed the name of Lampwick and threw a pillowcase over his head before running to confront his friend. Even though they were nine-year-old boys that had been hit with a horrible curse and will forever transform, they were still nine-year-old boys. So they spent the first ten minutes making fun of each other for having donkey ears, despite having donkey ears themselves. They laughed until Lampwick collapsed. While they were laughing at each other, and not productively addressing their problem in any way, their legs had been changing. Soon, their two legs had shriveled and shrunk, until they were skinny, knobby donkey legs. First Lampwick, and then Pinocchio, lost their footing, tumbling hard to the ground. They tried to crawl closer to one another, to not be alone as this was happening, but they could only watch as their hands turned gray and hard, and their fingers fell off or fused together. They were gray up to their shoulders, human torsos with four donkey feet. Soon, there was a pounding at the door, but the pair couldn't answer it. Their transformation was complete. They were donkeys. The splinters flew from the door jam, and as their donkey eyes adjusted to the light, they saw the round shape of the greasy driver filling the doorway. He knew these two had been close. He had been watching. He sneered and dragged them out into the daylight. Screaming inwardly, Pinocchio resisted until he remembered the man biting off the donkey's ear on the trip in. Realizing that he really should have been more horrified by that, Pinocchio dropped his head and followed obediently. It was a long trip out of the land of toys. Lampwick and Pinocchio were the only ones to turn that week, but they would fetch a good price. That greasy little man, surprise, surprise, was not on the level. There was no such thing as the land of toys. It was just a really large farm that he had bought, and he rode around kidnapping children 
waiting for the inevitable fate of all bad kids that everyone seemed to know about, but never communicated to children at all. And when they finally turned, he would drive away and sell the donkeys. In a few short years, he had exploited this fact in all human development to become a millionaire. His donkeys were the best, and everyone knew it. So Lampwick and Pinocchio went quickly. Lampwick went to a farmer who just worked his donkey so hard that he died. Pinocchio's donkeyhood, however, was a much different experience. Three months post-sale, Pinocchio was perfecting his ability to jump, bow, dance both a waltz and a polka, and stand on his head. He had been sold to the circus. And for the first month, he fought the ringleader every day. He refused to eat his straw or hay, and he refused to learn anything. He took the beatings for as long as he could bear, but even Pinocchio reached his breaking point. And so, he learned the tricks. And he was a star of sorts. The circus toured Europe, and Pinocchio, the trick donkey, headlined every show. One time, back in Italy, Pinocchio looked out on the crowd and saw her. He would recognize that turquoise hair anywhere. For a second, he hoped that she would be his salvation. Their eyes met, and the turquoise fairy, now a middle-aged woman, hung her head, got up from the stands, and left. After that, Pinocchio knew he was truly alone. It was the next night that brought his time at the circus to an end. He was surly after watching the turquoise fairy abandon him, and he didn't want to listen to the ringleader anymore. He didn't want to do tricks for a living. He refused to jump through a hoop, and it was only after the ringleader whispered in his ear that if he didn't, then that night would be his last, that Pinocchio gave a half-hearted leap. It was too low, though, and his hoof caught the ring meaning he came down hard on the other. It snapped, and he rolled to his side, brain in pain. The show ended early that night, and the next morning, Pinocchio was taken to town. The man from the circus was asking $4 for the donkey, saying he had once been famous. When it was revealed that he was hurt, though, the best offer that he could get was four cents. And so the man took it. Pinocchio limped to his new master, but when the man from the circus offered him any food for his new animal, he refused. Pinocchio stopped. The man explained that he wasn't going to use the donkey for work. He needed a skin for the drum he was making. The donkey wouldn't last the day. Pinocchio heed and hauled, struggling as his new owner dragged him away. He tried to fight the man, to kick, but he couldn't put weight on his broken leg. That's how the man got Pinocchio to the top of the hill and looped a rope around his neck. The other side of the rope was tied to a massive stone that Pinocchio's new master was rolling toward the cliff. The stone would drop, and he would wait for this donkey to drown in the water below before he dragged him out and skinned him. It was really no one's ideal Saturday. Pinocchio begged the man, but all he heard was brain. His new master gave the stone a hard kick, and it careened off the cliff and into the water. With it went the terrified donkey. Pinocchio, the marionette that had started his life as a sentient piece of wood, and then became a marionette with dreams of being a real boy, never knew that this would be how he died, drowning as an injured donkey. His final thoughts were of Geppetto, and of the turquoise fairy, and how he had wronged them both, of how he had wronged everyone in his life. As his vision darkened, he hoped that those people 
minus the talking cricket because he had died by Pinocchio's hand, would forgive him. Then, something miraculous and more than a little gross happened. Swarming him from all around were carnivorous fish, biting at his donkey fur and, eventually, his flesh. The new donkey master and drum enthusiast on the cliff stood watching as the water filled with blood. He expected a little, but yeah, something had gone wrong in a really gross way. Bubbles and laughter from the water below pulled him from his thoughts. A marionette bobbed the surface. A smile stretched across his face. Pinocchio knew that his mother, the turquoise fairy, had saved him. In a really unnecessary exposition dump, Pinocchio hollered his whole story up the side of the cliff to the donkey drummer, including the life-saving event he had just witnessed. Obviously, his turquoise fairy mom summoned a school of carnivorous fish to devour his animal body, revealing the puppet underneath. Pinocchio was overjoyed, despite floating in bloody water sprinkled with donkey bits. The new donkey master was confused and more than a little grossed out by the whole situation, but he was really angry about his four pennies and demanded a refund. With a chuckle, Pinocchio suggested that if he wanted to sell the puppet for firewood, he was welcome to dive in the muck and get him out. Oh, he didn't want to? Yeah, that's what Pinocchio thought. With a wave, he drifted out to sea, the man's threats growing softer and softer. He didn't know how long he drifted before he heard something familiar. A voice calling out to him from across the sea, calling his name. It wasn't that familiar because it was also a goat voice. The marionette rose from the water and saw a marble rock jutting from the ocean. On it stood a goat. A goat with a head full of turquoise hair. It was his confusing fairy mom, and for some reason, she was in goat form in the middle of the ocean. But Pinocchio would accept it. He had been through so much, and he thought he was alone in the world. At this point, he was just happy she had come to him. But she wasn't crying out in joy. She was yelling for Pinocchio to hurry. He was coming. When Pinocchio drew near enough to realize this, he rolled around and saw a five-story tall wave rising. It was the terrible shark. It was actually a whale, and it was the very whale that took his father from him. And he was coming for Pinocchio. Now, you might be wondering why he was going for this inedible wooden creature, and not the plump, blue-haired goat sitting alone on the rock. Well, as you know, whales don't want to be fed. Whales want to hunt. The turquoise fairy goat bleated in panic. If Pinocchio was caught by the whale, he'd be lost forever. Pinocchio swam fiercely and made it as far as the small, marble island where his goat mom crouched, hoofs straining to help Pinocchio up. He was almost there when the monster tore him from the rock. The goat cried out as the wall of water fell in beads to the waves below, and her little wooden son disappeared into the depths, devoured by the shadow. It was hard for Pinocchio to be upset when he awoke. Sure, he had been swallowed by the terrible whale, the same whale that ate his father, it turned out. But, on the other hand, he had been swallowed by the whale that had eaten his father, and he had survived, which meant that there was hope. He splashed along in the greasy darkness that stank of fish for minutes, running at full speed down the length of the monster, calling out for Geppetto. It had been two years, though and if his father had somehow managed to survive, and Pinocchio only got to be with him in the moments before he passed, that would be enough. 
at least they could be reunited, even if it wasn't death. It was nearly three quarters of a mile down the whale before Pinocchio saw the light. And it wasn't until he heard the man humming to himself that he dared to hope. Pinocchio found a small cabin lodged in the whale's large intestine. He burst through the door. Inside was the woodcarver, Geppetto, ragged and bearded, huddled around his last candle, trying to shove a live fish in his mouth. The father and son flew to each other and embraced, neither thinking they would ever see the other again. Pinocchio described his journeys and begged his father for forgiveness. Geppetto told his boy that seeing his little wooden face was all that he could have hoped for after years inside whale jail. Oh, and by the way, he survived because a whale ate a fully provisioned ship right after he ate Geppetto, and so Geppetto had food, wine, and candles. It had actually been a pretty comfortable stay. But now, Geppetto's time was running out. He was on his final candle, and the last cupboard full of food. After that, they would die, but at least they would die together. Pinocchio shook his head. He didn't find his father just to die with the man. No, he had an idea. Craftsman and his puppet son crept up the tongue of the terrible shark, who, since he was actually a whale, had to breathe air. He was so asthmatic that he had to sleep with his mouth open. Pinocchio stood on the teeth and looked out on the ocean. Geppetto, who couldn't swim, thus making his intended trip to America on a boat he made himself that much more poorly planned, clambered onto Pinocchio's back. The marionette knew he would need to be fast and quiet if they were going to get away from this misnamed shark. He slid into the water, and they got away without incident. The whale was snoring so loudly that he didn't even notice them go. For hours, Pinocchio swam, trying to be chipper for his father, but feeling his own strength start to wane. He swam until he couldn't swim anymore, and then he gave up, only to feel his feet come to rest on sand. They had done it. They had found land, Dad. Dad? Geppetto? though just riding on his son's back, had been too cold as Pinocchio swam across the sea. He walked a few feet and collapsed. Pinocchio hefted his dad on his shoulder, and together they passed a loose end plot point, a hairless fox and now a truly blind cat begging for food by the side of the road. Basking momentarily in some actually well-earned righteous indignation, Pinocchio and Geppetto then pressed on until they came to a hut in the forest. They burst through the door and begged the owner for help. A voice rang out from the rafters. It was a cricket who talked. Unbelievably, the very same one Pinocchio had murdered with a hammer. I bet you thought I was dead, right? The cricket smiled. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched you die. I watched a hammer smash your head, and I left your brain splattered across my wall. I talked to your ghost. How are you alive right now? Pinocchio asked. Oh, let's not worry about all those super reasonable questions. I'm alive now, and a homeowner. A goat with blue hair gave me a house. I had a lot of questions, but when a goat with blue hair offers to give you a house, you don't ask questions. You just sign the papers. Pinocchio begged the cricket's forgiveness, and he granted it. The hut was too roomy, he announced. I mean, it was like an airplane hangar for someone the size of a cricket and Geppetto and Pinocchio were welcome to stay there if they wanted. With a nod, Pinocchio helped his dad onto the bed, and he left in search of sustenance. 
There was a farmer a few fields over, and Pinocchio begged him for some milk for his father. The farmer told the puppet that he could work for some milk. And, for the first time, Pinocchio did it without issue, without complaining. As he was drawing ten buckets of water from the well for this farmer, he learned why the farmer was so hard up for labor. His donkey was on the verge of death. Of course, this donkey was none other than Lampwick, who died in Pinocchio's arms. Because what's a happy ending without a little bit of child death? Over the next few months, Pinocchio became someone he didn't even recognize. He drew water to get milk and food for his father. And, when Geppetto's condition was stable, he learned to make baskets from nearby reeds and sold them in town. With the money he made, he bought his father a wheelchair and himself a book. Pinocchio taught himself to read and write and learned everything he had missed in skipping out on years of school. Eventually, he was able to support his family and kept them fed. He even had enough left over for a new suit. Fifty pennies. I mean, that's like twelve injured donkeys worth of pennies. And as Pinocchio was running into town, he bumped into a familiar, judgy face. Snailfred! Pinocchio yelled in surprise when he ran into the turquoise fairy's old snail butler, but the bearded and destitute snail wasn't happy to see Pinocchio. He had just come from the hospital. The turquoise fairy was dying. Pinocchio asked what he could do, but the snail shook his head. Nothing. The puppet looked down to the 50 pieces he was going to spend on a new suit, sighed, and pressed them into the snail's slimy little hand. He didn't know if that would be enough, but it was all he had. He would rather have his fairy mom with him than a new suit anyway. If the snail met him here next week, he would have even more money for the fairy. The snail smiled and thanked the boy turned around, and headed back toward the hospital. It's also said he moved as fast as a bullet, which I guess he could do the whole time. Pinocchio blinked awake, but... But he wasn't awake. He wasn't at home, either. He was at his old house. He got it from the couch and found himself looking at the hunched and aged form of the turquoise fairy. He was about to ask if he was awake, but the fairy just shook her head. He asked if this was real. She nodded. He hung his head, and he begged her forgiveness. She rested her hand on his shoulder and drew him in. She embraced him, and she forgave him. He knew that she aged faster than most, and that this was goodbye. He didn't ask anything of her, he didn't want anything from her, other than to spend what moments they had left in the embrace of his adoptive mother. Even if it was just a dream. But she had something to give him. He had earned it long ago, back before the land of toys. He had lost his way, yes, but he had found it again. He had taken care of Geppetto when he was old and sick. And he had taken care of her, even though he knew he would never be repaid. He would never see her again, He'd never need to see her again. Her task was complete. He was shaking his head, knowing what would happen next, as she leaned in and kissed his forehead. That instant, he awoke with tears in his eyes. Wait, tears? His hand went to his face, and he was surprised to find both his hand and his cheek soft and fleshy. He leapt from the bed, and his feet slapped against the floor as he ran to the mirror. In the mirror, he didn't see that hard and 
maybe a little creepy living puppet he had grown used to looking at over the years. But a boy, a real boy. He rushed from the room, looking for his father, who had to be up and rolling around in his wheelchair by now. But he found the man standing, in perfect health, and carving at his bench again. Their little hut, too, had been transformed. Yes, when bad boys become good and kind, they have the power of making their homes gay and new with happiness, Geppetto bellowed in the original version. Pinocchio was stunned. That was cool. A bit on the nose and, oh wow, speaking of noses, he saw something in the corner. It was a little marionette. It was him as he used to be. He saw the scratches, the stabs, the fish bites in the wood. He had had quite a life. It was only the beginning. He had grown and changed, sometimes despite himself. He had earned this new life, and he would be grateful every day for it. He put his arm around his short-tempered craftsman dad and smiled at the cricket he had murdered once. He was home, surrounded by the people he loved, and he would never take that for granted again. the original story of Pinocchio, for all of its weirdness and ridiculousness, it's kind of a nice story of a young boy coming of age. Even if that young boy is a puppet, his journey isn't a straight path, but one where he makes progress and then backslides multiple times, eventually learning self-control and how to manage his impulses and make good decisions because even if it isn't the most fun thing to do at the moment, it is way better than being a donkey. Next time, we'll be back with a story from the Middle East. And I say next time, because we're taking a rare week off from Myths and Legends to work on some other stuff. We'll be back in two weeks, but in the meantime, check out Fictional. It's our other show, where we do what we do here, but with stories from classical literature. Season 3 starts toward the end of the summer, but in the meantime, there are 21 episodes on that feed, with everything from Sherlock Holmes to The Call of Cthulhu to Dante's Inferno to Shakespeare to The Count of Monte Cristo and Frankenstein. There's a lot. You can go to fictional.fm to find a list of places to subscribe, or just search for Fictional wherever you get your podcasts. The creature this week is the Kappa from Japanese folklore. If you've ever wondered if there's a creepy reptilian humanoid living in a nearby river with a turtle shell and beak that likes to eat pretty much anything, well, I have to say that that's very specific, but it would also be very correct, because that's the Kappa. It's about the size of a large child, and they have elastic green skin that stinks like fish and can apparently come off, which actually just sounds like a wetsuit, but whatever. Some noteworthy characteristics are the bowl-shaped indentations on the top of their heads that contain all of their power. I guess they have to have really good posture, because they have to keep water in it at all times, lest they get so weak that they can't move. And they also have a digestive tract modification that would make even the most powerful of the foonish wizards jealous because Kappas are very proud of their three anuses. They're a mixed bag of maybe they'll help you and maybe they'll eat you characteristics. On one hand, they are inherently brilliant physicians and are one of the few Japanese creatures that can learn human languages. It's speculated that the first doctors learned their trade from a Kappa who just had a big meal and didn't feel like eating the human. That's really the exception though. You should avoid this creature at all costs, which means not swimming in rivers. They're said to be pretty mischievous, but it appears that most interactions with them and with them eating the person, which is less mischievous fun and more so murder. They also enjoy cucumbers, 
so maybe you can bribe them with that. If you find yourself face to face with a kappa, you can't run, but you can bow. They are fiercely honorable. And if you aren't in a river, they'll bow too, and then collapse to the ground because all the water fell out of their bucket head. If you're able to capture it, congrats on your new best friend for life. They have to swear loyalty to you, and they are also fiercely loyal and never go back on their word. So yeah, you now have a smelly reptilian doctor friend who prides himself on being able to triple his fart capacity, hanging around your house a lot more. Lucky you. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes, and today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.